Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaker. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute, something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition! No, boy, wonder I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusader. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gato, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. Stella, and you're listening to Backroll the Oracle, the Barbara Gordon Podcast, episode 157. This is JL May 2018, and also The Road to No Man's Land for May MMXVIII. Backroll the Oracle is brought to you by JL May 2018. It's JL May. We're covering the Silver Age. This JL May, a comic event from Mark Wade. We're crossovering a podcast. There's 12 of us involved. Get it in your ear holes, this JL May. Tell you all 
the silver range It's not great But it's okay We really have to warn you It has a controversial one Where Mark Miller wrote the lead But it also has some good stuff Tintac style hedge metal fan Unknown Green Lantern Flash Patrol of Doom. The seven soldiers of victory are in there too. The annual JLMA event is upon us once more. 2018, we're reading The Silver Age from 2001. The journey begins in the podcast Justice's First Dawn and continues in the shows Relatively Geeky, Coffee and Comics, Supermates, Waiting for Doom, Idlehead of Diablo, The Longbox Crusade, The Lantern Cast, Batgirl to Oracle, Comic Reflections, Cosmic Treadmill, The Fire and Water Podcast. Do It came out in 2000. We got it right. And we're ready for some fun. Do you know it's It all begins this way. Backroll the Oracle is also brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. So if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out MileHighComics.com. Backroll the Oracle is a proud member of the Batman Universe family of podcasts. Hashtag TBU family. Support the Batman Universe and subscribe to the show on Patreon by going to thebatmanuniverse.net. Well, here we are. You are here most likely right now because you've listened to the other, I guess, 10 or 11 parts of the JL May 2018 coverage. So what is this? JL May is a podcast crossover event where we take a multi-part Justice League story and share it out in podcastable chunks across 12 podcasts. And this year, 2018, we're all reading the Silver Age special, which came out in 2000. It was a 12-part storyline. It ran through a series of one-shot comic books. 
Each of the twelve issues featured issue number one on the cover, but they all formed a larger story arc in which the Justice League of America fights the Injustice League, which was formed by the villain Agamemno, or if you're a classicist like myself, basically the knockoff of Agamemnon, the Greek general. It all started in Silver Age number one by Mark Wade and art by Terry Dotson, where the space-faring villain Agamemno travels to Earth where he finds Lex Luthor and explains his scheme for, of course, universal domination. The villain hopes to achieve his goal by combining three artifacts, the Absorbiscon from Thanagar, a piece of jewel kryptonite, and the central power battery of the Green Lantern Corps on Oa. It's explained that Agamemno needs the power of the JLA to collect these items, partially because two of them have these objects. With Luther's advice, Agamemno assembles a team to oppose the Justice League, the Injustice League, of course, and using his power swaps the minds of the heroes and villains. Lex Luthor swaps bodies with Superman, Kronos with Adam, Black Manta with Aquaman, Catwoman with Black Canary, Dr. Light with Martian Manhunter, Mr. Element with The Flash, Penguin with Batman, Felix Faust with Green Arrow, and Sinestro with Green Lantern. The villains are promised the Earth in exchange for aiding Agamemno, and after imprisoning the Justice League, they split up and head off to collect the items. Now... If you are coming here because you are a regular BTO listener, you might be wondering, (laughs) what's the context, which I will absolutely give that to you. And if you like what you hear, I suggest going to those other podcasts. And there is a very particular order that I suggest going. I did some research on this. Uh, So I will give you the issue as well as the podcast that you should go to. So here we go. Get your pen and your paper. First, you should go over to the Fire and Water podcast, where they will be covering the Silver Age Secret Files and Origins number one, which has a prequel story with Agamemno that sort of starts this whole thing off. Then, Justice's First Dawn, that podcast, has Silver Age number one, which has that uh, story that I just recapped, basically. Coffee and Comics, a.k.a. Kofefe and Comics, that podcast will host Silver Age, Justice League of America number one. Relatively Geeky Presents, you know, Prof Prof hosts that one. He's got Silver Age, Challengers of the Unknown number one. Supermates podcasts have Silver Age, Teen Titans number one. The Idol Head of Diabolu has Silver Age, Dial H for Hero number one. The Long Box Crusade has Silver Age, Flash number one. Waiting for Doom has Silver Age, Doom Patrol, number one. Comic Reflections has The Brave and the Bold, sorry, Silver Age, The Brave and the Bold, number one. The Lantern cast has Silver Age, Green Lantern, number one. I am going to be covering Silver Age, Showcase, number one. And then directly after this, I suggest for the conclusion, the climax of the story, going over to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill for the Silver Age 80-page giant number one. And I'll remind you of that after I do the recap and my review. So there you go. So let's get to this review. I'm sure you want to uh, get out of this podcast as quickly as possible and get over to Chris and Reggie. Just to give you context, I gave you a lot of it just to set up that story. That's basically all you need. But uh, at the very beginning, there's sort of this question of the Justice League were framed for doing something, or they've been doing, they've been wreaking havoc. And apparently, as the Injustice League was in the guise of the Justice League, they were smashing a ton of shrunken alien cities and actually went on a rampage against the Green Lantern Corps and the Guardians. So they've got some negative (laughs) publicity following them. 
So here we go. Silver Age Showcase number one. And the story is called The Seven Soldiers of Victory. Writer Jeff Johns. Art. Aha! Uh-huh. Dick Giordano. And colorist Tom McCraw. In the center spotlight, you'll see the JLA or Teen Titans, keeping our world safe. But behind the curtains, away from the public eye, a ragtag team of offbeat heroes battle evil in the darkest corners of the universe. Together, these super soldiers have been dubbed by their enigmatic leader, the Seven Soldiers of Victory. Chapter 1. Happy Harbor, Rhode Island, at the JLA's cavernous HQ. Deadman looks for Batman to find answers to the JLA's crimes. He happens upon Snapper Carr and Batman discussing the very thing these crimes here, where it turns out that the Injustice League framed the JLA by, of course, as I said, smashing a ton of shrunken alien cities and going on a rampage. Little does Snapper know that Batman is really a shape-shifted penguin. Luther and Sinestro contact Penguin to say they've all returned to their original bodies and have acquired the last of the three weapons, a jewel fragment from Krypton. Once they assemble it with the Absorbiscon and the central power battery, they will be invincible and they are doing it first on the planet Ran. Snapper tries to run but is captured by Penguin, now actually Penguin, not Penguin in the body of Batman, and Deadman comes up with a plan to stop the Injustice League and it all begins with, of course, Adam Strange. Speaking of Adam Strange, he's currently purchasing an engagement ring for Alana and is waiting for the Zeta Beam to take him to Ran. When a bum on the street, it's actually Dead Man who has possessed him, bumps into him and tells him that Ran is doomed and Strange must teleport to the planet with some friends. The bum, an undercover superhero, he says, will round up anyone he can and they'll meet at a deserted airfield. Elsewhere at Star Labs, Sergeant Gardner Grail is undergoing some tests, along with the new war suit powered by atomic fusion. The suit has been rushed through testing so it can get to the front lines, all because of this JLA fiasco. Grail argues that there is no integrity to watching enemies die on a computer screen. Chivalry's dead, Dr. Brendan says. And then he contradicts himself and says it actually isn't dead because, well, he's been possessed by a dead man. He tells Grail that the JLA are not to blame and to meet some heroes at an abandoned airfield. Gardner takes the suit and becomes the second shining knight. In Gotham, Deadman possesses Jim Gordon, who convinces Batgirl to also go to this abandoned airfield. In Midway City, he possesses the butler of Steve Dayton, a.k.a. Mento. In Metropolis, he possesses Element Girl to persuade Metamorpho. And in Washington, D.C., he possesses an anonymous woman to convince Major Blackhawk. Later, 10 miles north of the Calvin City Airport, the gathered heroes meet. Metamorpho is annoyed because he turned down membership to the JLA, and here he is, and Mento has some hang-ups about being on the Doom Patrol but not being an official member because he's not a quote-unquote freak. So people got some weird stuff going on here. Adam Strange gets them to listen up, and they all agree to go to Ran when Major Blackhawk lands. They all pile in the plane, even Dead Man, and direct their course towards where the Zeta Beam will strike. Chapter 2. On Rand, chaos is already in practice as the Injustice League easily fights off the soldiers of the homeworld of Rand, and Sinatra holds Alana in his yellow hand. Agamemno explains what will happen once the central power battery of a Green Lantern and the Kryptonian jewel are placed inside the Absorbiscon. I'm sure it has something to do with world domination and, of course, the knowledge of all things. But before the ingredients can be placed inside the oven and set to a toasty 350 degrees, the seven soldiers of victory attack and pair off against the Injustice League. Felix Faust protects Luther and Kronos, along with the ingredients, while Mento projects the GL core to distract Sinestro. Agamemno wrestles with Strange. Mr. Element turns Metamorpho into gold. I love gold! 
the look of it, the taste of it, the smell of it, the texture. I love gold so much that I even lost my genitalia in an unfortunate smelting accident. Hence the name, Gold Member. Mr. <laughs> Dr. Light in- initiates Shiny Knight into the hero business. Manta zaps Major Blackhawk and Catwoman whips Batgirl. Kronos and Luther continue to bake the cake while the tide of the battle turns. Deadman possesses Faust to give the hero some time. Metamorpho dissolves the gold by turning into Aqua Regia, then turns into a manganese shield to help Shiny Knight against Dr. Light. Batgirl uses Catwoman's whip to send her crashing into Manta, and then all the heroes gather to bang on the shield protecting Luther and Kronos, but it is too late as the cake is baked and Agamemno leaps into the central power battery. Chapter 3. Agamemno is torn inside out because Luther actually tricked him, of course, by slipping a diamond into the batter rather than a Kryptonian jewel. Luther then places the real jewel inside and takes away the battery's weakness to yellow and gains all knowledge at the same time, proving it by telling personal details of Shiny Knight and Batgirl's real name. Deadman leaves Faust's body to possess Luther, but it's too late, as the Zeta Beam begins to transport them back to Earth, just as Luther threatens all their loved ones. Strange can't even say goodbye to Alana, but I'm sure he's used to it. The heroes are a little depressed until Shiny Knight gives the team a pep talk and they all agree to go find the JLA. Dead Man is satisfied and happy that maybe the team has a future after all. Okay, and that was this issue. So first of all, it's got this Silver Age imprint. Uh, it's, it's intention is to act as if it were really coming from the Silver Age art writing, things like that. And I had read on Wikipedia anyways that there were intentional anachronistic references. And, well, we'll get to that. Uh, Hopefully, if you don't know what an anachronism is, it's basically this idea that you are referencing something that doesn't exist in the in the period that the story is taking place, but exists when you're writing. Uh, so this happens. This is actually an AP Latin term that I, I get to teach my students. So, for example, in Virgil's Aeneid, when Aeneas and his men land in Carthage, he's talking about the island, and he says that no hooked anchor can basically attach itself so there's no place for it and so that the hooked anchor is an anachronism because at the time post-trojan war with aeneas that did not exist but the hooked anchor existed with virgil so you get that sort of idea so we'll see if that happened here first of all i want to talk about the art uh dick giordano I mean, amazing. I, I love that he was on here. I, I think it certainly captured the feel of the Silver Age. The very first time I saw Batgirl wearing her suit with with Jim up there, it was really dark, and I thought it was the black suit. But uh, as you continue on, you, you actually realize it is the gray suit. It was just really dark that time, and it's almost a, a darkened version. So I was happy that she had the gray suit, as she should have in the Silver Age. The only thing that's missing, of course, is the red weapons pouch or purse. But, you know, whether you want to, you know, it's an annoying thing to have. But if you want to have a nod to the Silver Age, that is something to have there. I felt like there weren't any anachronisms in this particular issue. So perhaps it was something that was missing in this one but popped up elsewhere. I will say that something you can't find in this issue is misogyny towards uh, Batgirl. 
because really in the Silver Age, you know, all the the men would be uh, pushing her to the side. There was perhaps one uh, or two moments, you know, Major Blackhawk doesn't remember his one-night stand's name, so I, I suppose we could also think of that as, I don't know, man's world yeah i don't know but (laughs) that was a little weird because i thought it was a little scandalous for the silver age the other thing is uh, i think a a funny little nod to the fact that batgirl was the only woman there is the fact when major blackhawk arrives at the abandoned airfield and says who's in charge here and all the men say i am and then she's back there saying oh geez when she's (laughs) probably the the best one to actually uh be in charge but i guess if you think about it I wonder who has had the most leadership or has been in the in the verse for the longest. It might be Metamorpho. I'd say there might be a tie between Metamorpho and Adam Strange. Uh, so I'd pick one of those two. And of course, Adam Strange, I think, is the most likely leader in that group because they're going to Ran and he knows the lay of the land. I did wonder, you know, with, with this beginning, I, I, I read the sort of the intro line. Uh, it felt very Silver Age, especially, you know, panel to panel or chapter to chapter. They'd have like a little recap of what happened in the other chapter as if you're coming off of a couple issues and you need reminding. So that was very Silver Age as well. But when it was talking about their enigmatic leader, I thought, hmm, who is that? I think it's got to be Dead Man, right? Because the others would not have chosen the number seven because they don't know that Dead Man is actually there. So I think he might be, at least he considers himself the leader, and I guess it's because he gathered them all together. I also wonder about the focus on Shining Knight. I think Adam Strange absolutely deserves a few soul pages since Ran is wrapped up in his personal history, and that's where this, this huge battle and climax of the issue is going to happen. But then we focus on Gardner Grail for a couple pages. And then throughout, and then the end, he's the one to give the uh, pep talk. And I just wonder why him. Is it because it's his first appearance? Does Jeff Johns have a personal love for Shiny Knight? I don't really know. Of course, I'm biased, and I think I would have liked to see Batgirl get that space. But, you know, even if I if I were to be objective, I think out of all of them, I would say that Metamorpho would be the most prolific. But I could be wrong. Someone can, of course, correct me there. This is coming from a non-Silver Age perspective. But I would think that he, like I said before, he and Adam Strange would be the two that I would focus on. I always find it interesting in big fights to see who is pitted up against whom. I like that to a certain extent dance partners are exchanged or there are some team-ups so you're not just stuck with the same person. But I always feel like the token female is placed against the other female. And, uh, you know, after this I'm going to talk about the classic, the BBC, the British, the Avengers. And, you know, sometimes this happened to to Emma Peel from time to time, but she also danced with men. She wasn't always relegated to the women, or she would wash her hands of of the woman very quickly, um, wipe the floor with her, and then go on, on to the men. So it just, you know, it was obvious that, of course, Catwoman and Batgirl were going to face off, and maybe it was just a, a weird, maybe it's just this feeling that you don't want a man to be hitting a woman, but, you know, I think that Batgirl can take some hits and she can dish them out as well. So, but, you know, it's Silver Age, so it it makes sense, absolutely. Besides some introductory context and more information about the technology that they are making, I felt like overall this 
issue is pretty good as a standalone because without the context, you just come in with Snapper Carr and Penguin as Batman. And first it's the Snapper Carr and Batman. And you wonder about the speech bubble that he's talking about, like, if only you knew, kid. And then all of a sudden he turns into Penguin. And if you're only reading that, it's a little wacky. And then, of course, baking the cake, as I said, or, you know, throwing all those ingredients into the power battery. You're not really sure exactly what's happening. But other than that, it works well as a, as a fun adventure. You know, the team had certain unique quirks, and while I liked some members over others, absolutely Batgirl, of course, Deadman, and Metamorpho, I think, would have to be my favorites. Mento was a little annoying. I was, I don't know. And then Shiny Knight, he was fine, but I just didn't understand the focus on him, really, or I didn't like it as much. I felt like it was misplaced. I would like to see another episode with this team. I think this would be super fun. There there really are ragtag, and not ragtag in the sense of they don't deserve to be fighting but uh just a group of people that you don't really you wouldn't it wouldn't be your knee-jerk reaction to pair them up together and i really like dead man i think dead man's a cool character i feel for him because he's just sort of wandering out there until he can figure out who killed him but i i think it was after i did an episode one of my halloween specials with michael bailey because we did a batman brave and the bold with dead man that I read his original appearances in like the first run and stuff. And he's just, he's a cool character, but you, you feel for, you feel bad for him. I mean, I do not in here, (laughs) but uh, I will say though, that when he was in the bum, besides it being a little off that this bum is sort of precognizant of what's happening, or he's well aware of what's happening. You don't really understand that dead man's in him because they didn't show that panel. But the art that they did with Dead Man possessing someone is sort of like these really detailed squiggly lines around him. So it looks like they're sort of shaking. And I appreciated that because then you could pick out where Dead Man was if you didn't see him leap into another body. So another deft art skill. Hey, overall, I think I would give this an 8.5 out of 10 Absorbiscons. thought it was really fun. And I again, I guess I'm not going to see this team again. But <laughs> I, you know, the art was great. The story was fun. And I look forward to listening to the ending, the wrap up of this storyline. Remember that you need to find your way or make your way to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill for the finale in Silver Age 80-page giant number one. Well, that's all I have for you if you're here just for the JL May 2018 coverage. If not, you can hang on a little bit more and we'll get back to our regularly scheduled program. I'm going to be covering some Road to No Man's Land, kind of, sort of. So let's do our first Zias's Radio Hour. This is Keep the Streets Clean for Me by Fever Ray.
Zawete. It's me, Stella, and here we are with our regularly scheduled program. Kind of, sort of, I'm going to go through Road to No Man's Land. And I say that because it's not going to be full coverage like I do with, <laughs> that I've done, I guess, with, you know, Cataclysm and Contagion and things like that. But be- mainly because Babs does pop up, I felt like she didn't play as significant a role as she has in other storylines and yeah I'm sort of just biding my time for No Man's Land for sure. Before I get into several recaps of books I did want to talk about two things. First of all the British Avengers. Now I had been on a bit of a Diana Rigg kick I think because a couple years ago I had rewatched practically all except I think the Roger Moore James Bond and of course on Her Majesty's Secret Service you've got Diana Rigg and you know she's in Rebecca she plays (laughs) the the, the villain and Game of Thrones plays a, a wonderful and calculating lady but I really wanted to see her on the Avengers and they just didn't really have I mean you could buy I think it was pretty expensive or it just was not as easy to come by and then this Christmas my momsy got me the 16 disc collector's edition where it's the complete Emma Peel mega set and I was super excited and I recently finished all of them and I just have to say that Emma Peel is awesome Uh, she's intelligent (laughs) she's funny she can kick butt Patrick Mac McNee who plays Steed of course uh, doesn't talk down to her they have a, a great relationship yeah, I don't know. It was just, it was awesome. Sometimes the, the episodes are quirky. Sometimes they're, they're sinister and you get nervous for them. But uh, I, I certainly recommend checking a couple of these out. I think the highest rating one was called A Touch of Brimstone, which apparently this was a basis for the Hellfire Club uh, in Marvel's X-Men and all of that stuff with Jean Grey and things. It was scandalous. It was scandalous what Diana Rigg was wearing, especially in the 60s. And apparently she was the one who who designed it. But I will say uh, the house that Jack built, I thought, was a really interesting one. It was very much Emma Peel-focused, like her trying to figure out how to get out of this house. I'm pretty sure that's the one I'm thinking of. I don't know them as well by title, but I definitely know what's happening. The How to Succeed at Murder was the wackiest one, because once you find out who the villain is, like they showed something, it was so weird. It was, I mean, think ventriloquist. One of the ones that I laughed at the most was what the butler saw, and it's mainly because of how many costumes Steed has, and this really funny, I think he's an Air Force captain or something, and he's spitting out all these acronyms with this other guy. I rewound it like three times to watch it. I'm trying to think who else. Um, there was a really touching one. I think it might have been Murdersville, where a close family friend of Emma Peel was killed. And I think that was sort of the deepest emotionally that you got with her. I mean, you certainly got history with the house that Jack built, but that one was sad to see her, her friend having been killed. And I will say that one of the poorest ones I saw was I, I the Forget-Me-Not, which was the end. I mean, it was basically the handoff, the trade from Emma Peel to whoever the next girl is. And I'm glad that I don't have the like all of them because the next girl was, I don't know, 
she annoyed me and she seemed like a dud. But, oh man, I, I yeah, I recommend just checking out a couple episodes. Uh, like I said, you know, some of them are strange. Some of them are more comedic. Oh, I forgot about, there's one called Who's Who. And it cracked me up because you could tell in the commercials were because they came back from commercial and then they were saying like, just in case you're tuning in, these are our heroes and these are the villains because the villains had swapped bodies with Mrs. Peel and Steed. So I will say though about the, the forget me not, it was, uh, it was sad at the very end when they, her husband comes back from the dead and she it just it was a touching goodbye between Emma and and John and um, oh she like touches his heart and you know he says thank you as she walks out the door and it's funny because her her husband is you know has an umbrella and a bowler cap just like uh, Steve does so I guess she has a type. What's interesting is that she left to do that James Bond film and then the woman who played Pussy Galore, whose name is now escaping me, she was on the Avengers before Emma Peel, and she left in order to be Pussy Galore. With the, so there's sort of a James Bond situation. But people pop up that you wouldn't... My goodness, I was seeing all sorts of people uh, that you... I'm trying to think here. I know Grand Moff Tarkin was in there in one. And President Snow, whose name I've forgotten now from the Hunger Games. So it was just interesting to see these people that, oh, 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 Christopher Lee was in there. Oh, man. Again, I just recommend it. And, uh, of course, you know, Chris Carnes uh, loves this show as well. And uh, so now we, we certainly had another thing to uh, to talk about. The other thing I wanted to tell you guys about was about my um, my spring break, which was the first week of April, and I didn't really talk about it uh, when Tom was on. We either did that. I might have recorded before spring break, actually. But you know how I like to do an adventure per spring break? So the main adventure that I needed to do was to get yellow fever. That's right, yellow fever. No, I needed a vaccine. I had, uh, I'm going to Kenya, and... Yellow fever is in short supply in the U.S. right now, the vaccine, and it was uh, really difficult. Uh, My general physician didn't have it. I was going to UVA to get it done, and then there was a snowstorm, and, well, not really. There, There was a delay. It caused a delay, and so I had to cancel because... I was trying to not take off from school, just a, you know, a period or so. And then someone told me, oh, you're going to be there for more than two hours. And I'm like, oh, great. So then I was going to take off a full day from school and go there. But I decided that I would call because they don't even tell you at this place if they have the vaccine. So a week before I asked... And I called, couldn't get in touch with the nurse. Second time, called, no, we don't have yellow fever. So I'm like, great. So then I get transferred to a Publix of all places. Yes, a Publix in uh, close to Richmond. So basically an hour and a half out of the way, hour 15. And they have yellow fever. So now I have an appointment. Then I get called maybe a week later. And they, they don't have the vaccine because there was a snowstorm in Pennsylvania where they were going to get the vaccine. So then I had to move it again. This is, the, uh, my goodness, yellow fever. And finally, so I was going to get it the first day of my spring break. Went up there, got the shot. It is not approved by the FDC in uh, the U.S. of A. So I had all this literature about it. And it's, you know, approved elsewhere. And it's it's helped people out. But, of course, there's, you know, some cases where people have actually gotten yellow fever and uh, died. So, you know, 
it's it's a crapshoot really so i got it i'm still okay i think uh, i will continue to be okay then i went uh indoor mountain climbing did that on monday on tuesday uh went to see a film and had lunch with my parents wednesday i had breakfast with uh ellie and jacob and then i went uh hiking and it was it was i've hiked this before humpback rocks but it was a tough one because um it was muddy and uh, very windy once you got up to the top and there were fallen limbs so i was like climbing every which way so it was probably the toughest one hike at that particular place because it's not the most difficult hike the beginning is really steep so it's usually the worst part but after that uh it's not as bad but it was it was difficult thursday i think i took it easy and then friday i went up to nyc and took little ellie with me and uh so went up to jersey stayed with uh some friends there and then saturday took the bus into the city went to see carousel and then came back and then sunday drove back to virginia now carousel is the other thing that i wanted to talk about i wanted to see carousel because uh, i feel like i've not necessarily seen a classic broadway you know one that's come back i really wanted to see the king and i when uh, kelly o'hara was in it because she's my favorite broadway actress uh, but just didn't get a chance unfortunately so i went to see this one and i first of all uh jesse Mueller's in it and she won a tony for being in beautiful the carol king musical and the other person in this was joshua henry uh he plays her her love interest and it's it's very beautiful i i loved the songs but and of course you know there's sort of love there but it just it raises so many questions and i you know ellie and i had a couple different discussions about this of you know first of all there's abuse i mean he hits her and he he says that it was once and it does happen once but i don't know he you know she keeps well she kept going back to him or she goes back to him and even her friend who says, you know, you need to leave, is easily persuaded that, um, you know, it's okay. He only did it that one time. And so you kind of wonder about this and, and are we trying to put a positive spin on domestic abuse? And then, you know, later on, he hits his daughter when he's in sort of his, his spirit form. And I, I recall, either in the film or something, I would have to get a script, but the line that she says to her mother is it didn't hurt it felt like a kiss but in the musical that i saw it's just it didn't hurt and so i wonder if they took that out to sort of downplay it but not put a more again a positive spin on it but i just wonder you know was there love between them uh because i think obviously you know jesse Mueller's character i i think loved billy but did he love her you know why did they get married uh you know when she reveals she's pregnant there's sort of a turnaround with all of that there's just i don't know there's a it's it's deep in the sense of it raises lots of questions and i'm just not sure about it i'm not sure about it i'm very glad i saw it uh it was dance heavy which was amazing some of these uh these dances were great 
I will say that my least favorite character was the daughter. I think uh, her singing <laughs> was probably the, the weakest singer that they had. And um, the acting was a little weird as well. I always say, you know, if I can tell you're acting, you're not doing a good job. And I, I think she was probably most likely hired for the dancing because she had this long um, ballet duet with, uh, with another man. So, yeah. Uh, so I recommend it. But um, I think also just... Uh, I'd love to talk with somebody about it. And, yeah, I don't know. I'd like to read if, you know, source material and, and, and perhaps get a, another glimpse. But there you go. There you have it. Just wanted to talk about Carousel and Avengers. Okay. Well, we got to get into this because there's a lot here. And this is the road to no man's land i recently got the resolicited two volumes of it so you can get that and that's where this is coming from and i'm just going to talk about the issues that barbara gordon's actually in but just to give you a sense of what this story is obviously it is leading up to no man's land but it's taking place it's coming right off the heels of cataclysm so Gotham City's already in a bad place, and then it just seems to get worse, and it leads us right into this time where uh, Gotham's going to be completely disavowed and, and separated physically as well as metaphorically from the rest of the world. So I'm just going to go through. I'll go in order of when of the stories that they actually happened. First is Detective Comics 724. Writer Chuck Dixon, penciler Jim Aparo, inker Jamie Hodgkins and course Gloria Vasquez and Android Images. Barbara's at GCPD here and her father is bringing her some coffee. He tells her to go home and, uh, and he says that she has done so much and saved so many people and offers for her to stay with him and Sarah but she says that her landlord quake proofed her building years ago so she's going to return to the clock tower. Shadow of the Bat 79, writer Alan Grant, penciler Mark Buckingham, inker Wayne Foucher and colorist Pamela Rambo and Android Images. Oracle is helping Batman find Narcosis and provides intel along the way. In Azrael 47, writer Dennis O'Neill, penciler Roger Robinson, anchor James Pascoe, and colorist Demetrius Bazookas and Prismacolor. Batman asks Azrael to protect Senator Esterbrook Halivan. Oracle provides Azrael with info about the senator as well as Nick Scratch, this rocker. Originally, he was sort of this nerdy scientist, and he's going to become a very important character in The Road to No Man's Land. There's a shipping moment to a certain extent with Oracle asking if... Azrael has a girlfriend yet and telling him to go on a date. So clearly she's concerned about his side life. This is also where, I think it's in 47, Azrael fails his mission. And I feel like it's not his fault, but Batman's a bit of a jerk to Azrael and says, you know, basically you had one job and you failed to do it. But he tried, and it's, I don't know. I don't know why he's blamed. Well, I guess because he failed. But, you know, he, <laughs> it, Sometimes I wonder about Batman a little bit. Uh, I just read a book, uh, which I'll talk about later. Later, But, you know, Batman is very hard on Huntress as well. You know, she she makes a mistake and it costs people's lives. But she's, like, trying here. It's not like she's intentionally killing people. So I'm not sure. I was a little upset with that. I do want to talk about this next story. In Batman Chronicles number 15, writer Marco Palmieri, artist James A. Hodgkins, and colors Pamela Rambo. 
In the second story, Oracle is just signing off after coordinating Black Canary's patrol of Gotham City. Two burglars break in and are about to confront Barbara Gordon when Manbat breaks through the skylight and defends her. And he easily bests the burglars and then shares a moment with Barbara. He actually takes to the sky with her on his back, returning her to the apartment after the fight is done. I don't care for the art as much, uh, mainly because the images seem shapeless or formless, and Barbara Gordon's haircut is pretty bad. But this story was really well done, because I think it works on several different levels. You get to see what the birds might be up to, and that they also do local missions. And you have some nostalgia with Manbat, because he would be a backup in the Bronze Detective comics, with Babs also serving in a short story in the backup in that book. You also get to see that while she really wants to stay and protect Gotham, it's also getting to her. And even the most hopeful get frustrated. I do wonder why Babs is portrayed somewhat helpless uh, when the burglars pop in because, you know, I think she could take those perps. But it does bring in Manbat and it, it leads to a beautiful and intimate moment between them where she gets to see that there is hope in the city. And he gets, I think, a human interaction where someone doesn't think that he's just a monster. So I really liked that second story in Batman Chronicles 15. Next is Detective Comics 727. Writer Chuck Dixon, penciler William Rosado, inker Salbushema, colors Gloria Vasquez, and Android Images. Oracle, Nightwing, and Robin watch the U.S. congressional hearings trying to decide whether to save Gotham or disavow it. And then she lends support to Nightwing and Robin as they go after Firefly. And then she destroys a TV after listening to Nick Scratch say Gotham should be torn down. So... TV count number one. Batman 5562, Ryder Chuck Dixon, penciler Jim Aparo, anchor David Roach, colors Lee Lowridge. Oracle breaks another monitor, that's number two, in frustration over the news and ig- ig- ignoring, and the ignoring, the ignorance, the ignoring of the plight of Gothamites. When Nightwing and Robin talk about leaving Gotham, Barbara says she's staying. <laughs> Dick and Babs argue over this, shipper, but she refuses to be run out of town. In Detective Comics 729, with writer Chuck Dixon, penciler William Rosado, inker Sal Bishema, and color scorer Vasquez and Android Images, Oracle helps Robin find Nightwing, who's been taken by Gearhead. And finally, in this, Ezreal 49, writer Dennis O'Neill, penciler Roger Robinson, inker James Pasco, and colors Demetrius Pasukos and Prismacolor. Oracle gives intel to Ezreal, even though she knows Batman wouldn't approve. Two questions. Number one, why should she care? She goes against him sometimes, too, and sort of gives him the proverbial finger. Number two, is he her boss? She calls him that, I think, jokingly sometimes, but honestly, she can do what she wants. She's she's her own woman. She can do what she wants. Uh, so that wraps up Road to No Man's Land. I will say that uh, around the same time, The Power of Shazam, number 45, it was noted in my Excel document that she appeared here and so I asked I took to the Twitter and I asked hey does anyone have this it says Oracle's in it could you tell me what's going on so thanks to Paul Hicks uh, I believe he's on the run from PETA because he, he punches qual bears for whatever reason he said uh, well he showed me the panel and basically it's a JLA reference uh, it's Oracle talking to Steel so not much happening there so 
overall, uh, if you think about this Road to No Man's Land, which I should also call it as Aftershock, because I think at first it had the the imprint of Aftershock, and then it, it turned into Road to No Man's Land. I really liked it. Uh, I thought that the, the stories were really compelling. You see the breakdown of society. You see different villains popping up and, and taking advantage of the situation that they have. You see... <sighs> Batman in two different guises. You see him as Bruce Wayne and you see him as Batman. And, you know, unfortunately, his Playboy image certainly got in the way because I think people thought poorly of him when he was speaking to Congress and things like that. You see, you know, the part the government played with this whole thing. People trying to pick up the pieces um, and doing what they can, but being frustrated because it, it. certainly doesn't turn out well. Nick Scratch, uh, someone that I was not aware of, and the part that he played in just really wanting to destroy Gotham, and Arkham as well, and and seeing what goes on with them, with Jeremiah Arkham, as well as with the inmates in um, Shadow of the Bat, sort of, uh, I think it was a three-part story. So, yeah, you get a taste of everything, I think, every little part of Gotham and what's going on, and I had read No Man's Land out of context. I think that was probably my first major Batman story that I had read. And so to now be going there again chronologically and and this lead up, I think it gives even more weight to it. And so I'm I'm super excited to read it. I do, you know, it's a little weird that Bruce Wayne just sort of disappears. And um, I'm looking forward to reading his reasons uh, again I guess in the comics I read it in the novelization which I'll talk about later but you know is he I guess I mean it says that he was trying to get financial backing um, but I think he was also trying to let off steam and like mentally prepare himself but it just seems really strange that he would leave at that time when all of this stuff was happening and I, I do I, I think that he he does honestly let people down and sort of betrays them but I guess I'll maybe I should wait to to have my final judgment against him until I read it. So uh, I absolutely recommend Aftershock and Road to No Man's Land. I thought it was great. I will say that in Batman Chronicles, I guess it was probably the same one, 15. You know, there's that prose story. I don't understand why people do that. If I wanted to read a book, which you people know that I read books very often, I would read a book. I, I don't need a bunch of prose written in my comic book. It was very odd. If I were to give this uh, a grade, if I were to sort of think of it as a whole, I think I'd give it a solid 8.5 out of 10 Nick Scratches. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, a question, would it be able to work without her? I think yes, without Babs, that is. I think yes, because she certainly wasn't featured prominently. It was good to see her. I think the role that she plays is fine. I think you need to have a focus on Batman and Bruce Wayne and then little pieces here and there with with the people and sort of what they're doing and seeing her get back to the clock tower and setting up really uh, what she's going to be doing. Uh, that she's going to stay in no man's land, you're setting that up, and uh, that she's very much going to be coordinating help and attack. So you're setting her up well, but she doesn't need to be a center focus in this story, I would say. Well, shockingly, there are no listener comments or questions, which, you know, I asked two big ones in the last episode, so I was surprised, but maybe they'll come back after this. I don't know. So I'm going to take another break. 
And when I come back, I will review Batgirl and the Birds of Prey number 21 and Batgirl number 74, a.k.a. Batgirl 22. But first, Zias' Radio Hour Part 2, featuring Runaway by Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs. Sense of time. 
Welcome back. I'm going to apologize in advance because I was disappointed with this round of modern issues. And for both of them, I was reading, I think, with a scowl on my face. So, here we go. Birds of Prey number 21, Full Circle Part 3, War Cry. Writers Julie and Shauna Benson, artists Rohe Antonio, and colorist Marcelo Maiolo. Finise is being harshly interrogated, she spits up some blood, by the anti-BOP, I'll call them, asked repeatedly who Oracle is and why she will not fight with the anti-BOP against the BOP. As the last resort, Blackbird stares into Finise's eyes, and Finise reveals that Huntress is her daughter. At the clock tower, Helena is also spitting up blood due to her wounds from the showdown with Burnright. She feels betrayed by her mother, while Dinah and Babs think through other possibilities. Dinah forbids both Huntress and Batgirl from going out, but she teams up with Green Arrow and makes her way to Blackbird's dojo, reminiscing about her training there and also, oddly, looking for her mother. This makes Dinah realize that Finise probably either wants to reconnect with her daughter or kill her. Speaking of, Huntress gets a security alert that burn rate is inside her apartment, so she blows it. Don't worry, the fire is self-contained, just as Dinah and Ollie arrive. Burn rate is still going, and Dinah is unable to use her canary cry to destroy it because she is afraid. Bab suddenly alerts her that kidnappings are happening all over town, and they are holding hostages at 30 different locations. The birds split up, and Dinah slash Ollie find their way to Gotham City Hall, where D'Alessandro, a mob family has taken hostages. Ollie blows a fuse and both of them crash in and take out the mob. They quickly realize that Calculator is using Mafia families to try to smoke Oracle out. Dinah decides that it's in everyone's best interest to give Oracle to Calculator. The birds meet the anti-birds at TerraCare. Batgirl lets Calculator know that Gus was Oracle and he is dead. Calculator doesn't buy it and a fight ensues, with Poison Ivy and Catwoman joining the fray. Please note that this fight takes place before the events of Batman number 41 and Damage number 4, as told by the editors. Canary fights Blackbird in the guise of Canary. Huntress runs after her mother, and the remainder of the team battles Burn Rate. Fake Canary captures Huntress, and the real Canary unleashes her most powerful cry yet, destroying Burn Rate, but knocking her team out as well. Meanwhile, Blackbird peers into Huntress's eyes and asks the million-dollar question, once again, who is Oracle? Next, end of the line. I first want to say that there are several mistakes in this issue, and it makes me frustrated that there would be these sorts of mistakes because there's something that could easily be caught by an editor. Mostly they are bubble mistakes. So if I were to, let's see here, in, let's see, is this page three? On page three where Huntress is spitting up blood in the panel below it, Barbara says, what is it? And then Huntress says, Huntress says, that night we had Finise arrested, Helena removed her mask. And I should say Huntress slash Helena. That clearly should not be, that I, that maybe you should be with Donna because Donna doesn't have a speech bubble. But Helena slash Huntress is not going to speak to herself in third person. The other, right below it, on page four, Huntress is ready to go out and... Barbara's also going to go out, and the speech bubble next to Barbara says, No, same goes for you, Babs. Calculator's forming a posse to help him find Oracle, which means you're a target too. Barbara would not be the one to say that. It would be 
canary. So that sort of thing. And then there was a, oh my gosh, where, let's see what page this is. I think I'm on page 19, 18 or 19, where, uh, Dinah gets knocked out and the fake Dinah is going away and then you see Finise running and Hunter says, oh, hell no, you aren't running out on me. What? You aren't? You, you couldn't pick that up? So those are just some frustrating details that annoy me. The canary cry, well, let me, let me step back and say also that there are contradictions in here and I hate to be that person but what's happening here this is I don't know so contradictions number one the canary cry all of a sudden black canary is freaked out about using her ultimate potential um she's scared to to use it against burn ray and then she does use it and of course you know her fear fear comes to fruition remember when she used it very powerfully i think it was on the top of the eiffel tower with that fight no one got hurt she destroyed the thing and it all worked out well where's this fear coming from and why now of all times i don't know Poison Ivy, this whole situation with her being a villainous villain in Batman, and she's okay here, she's helping out, even if the editor's note says it happens before her becoming a villainous villain, there's an inconsistency, someone doesn't just go from one to the other. Also, Poison Ivy and Catwoman don't know, apparently, Barbara Gordon's ID, because this is uh, said to us, told to us, and now I could potentially reason that they know she's Barbara Gordon, but not Oracle, so it's just a wordplay. But really, I wasn't feeling good about this. And I went and found that issue that I knew there was a a, uh, a dinner, a dinner together. And it was issue 13, near the end. It says, uh, let's see here, do-do-do-do-do, they're all, Ivy's there, Catwoman's there, Huntress is there, and uh, Canary's there. Ivy says, what's next for you, Selena? Catwoman says, I've got something on the horizon, keeping me engaged, probably playing on words there. Huntress says, where's Barbara? I thought she was joining us. And then Dinah's on the phone and says, hey, Oracle, should we get yours to go or what? So in open, open, open air. So I think that, yes, they know that Barbara Gordon is both Batgirl and Oracle. So contradiction. This is not stuff that would happen normally. Uh, This is, for me, I felt that this was a really, really weak issue. And I was surprised because the Benson sisters, this is not their high quality. And this seems to happen. This seems to happen when uh, people know, I think they're on the out. And and I wish it wouldn't. I wish that they would, they would keep it going strong. You know, that like, let's, let's end on a high note. And so I'm just disappointed that it's like this. Tom was right that Black Canary was the mouthpiece in this particular episode. And you get some insight into her, and I guess that's why we're adding depth and giving her fear, but I just feel like the fear is coming from nowhere. Really weird scene in the dojo where she... I don't know. She said, are you there, mother, when she's looking in the mirror? And I guess it could be some sort of metaphorical, like, you know, or... um, existential moment for her and then she wipes her finger across the glass and cuts i mean presumably because it's broken mirror she cuts herself and then there's blood really weird stuff going on and freaking out at ollie that whole i don't know i just keep that street scene was just so so weird you know, I'm I'm glad that Huntress, well, she feels betrayed quite rightly, and then you've got the other two birds giving her a reasonable explanation, because I I think that is certainly due. 
I liked that you had this fight between Canary and Canary, and you also had sort of a, a reunion between Canary and Blackbird. And, uh, of course, we end on a cliffhanger. And, you know, I don't really know where we're going from here. I think, you know, Huntress, the obvious answer is that Huntress gives up Oracle. But quite honestly, Huntress was matron of Spiral. So I feel like she should have some sort of anti-hypnotism contacts. So, you know, it's it's all going to end. And I hope, uh, you know, with how disappointed I am with this particular issue, that it ends uh, better than that. We remarked on the key. I remarked on it last episode. It pops up again, but only in passing. Like, did you figure out what that key was? And no, she hasn't. So we have one more issue to talk about that key and actually figure out what it is. In all of my uh, negativity, I did forget to tell or talk to you about my favorite art panels because uh, there are positive things about this. I would say that page 20 is one of my favorites. Uh, Maybe it's 19. Page 19 where you... No, is it 20? Hmm. I think it's... Yeah, it's 20. Page 20 where you have the full page spread of Canary just letting loose and destroying burn rate. There was another one. It was when burn rate is exploded out of page eight, exploded out of the apartment building. Just like it reminds me of Atomic Skull a little bit. But yeah, I just like the the flames and things like that. So so there are some positive aspects. You know what else might happen though is because this whole thing happened with Dinah hitting her team basically that she might become gun shy and sort of want to give up the the superhero business. But I think she's going to still probably pop up in her lover's book because, you know, the Benson sisters are going to be writing Green Arrow. So there you go. But I just feel like I don't know, simple mistakes that were made. Um, and, and you can't blame the Benson sisters for the wrong bubbles, but I don't really know why someone wasn't catching that grammatical error happening. And then, of course, the, the contradictions. So, and, and just, yeah, weird, I think, plot things going on with Canary. Adding depth where you can absolutely add depth to the character, but not in a weird manner like has been happening in in this issue again looking in the mirror saying mom is that you and then cutting your finger while scraping it across some broken glass what what's going on so i'm going to give this a 6.5 out of 10 birds please 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 let 22 end on a high note and speaking of 22 we have batgirl 74 or 22 strange loop part one writer hope larson penciler mink you young inker jose marzan jr and colors matt lopez Batgirl happens upon a domestic disturbance where a guy with a visor and ray gun, something you probably see in Flash Gordon, has returned to take his kids back. Lou, his name is, points the gun at his ex-wife Cleo, but Batgirl leaps in between. She's knocked back by the ray gun, but her suit takes the brunt of the impact. Lou then points the gun at Batgirl before she breaks it and takes him down. Lou then complains that he bought everything for his wife because he's rich. And and kids, of course, and that she had no right to divorce him. Batgirl says that people are allowed to change, but fortunately she's freed from any more of his complaints by the police who come to pick him up and allow Batgirl to go home with a headache and hopefully get some aspirin. 
The next day, Frankie awakens Babs saying she needs to go to get some special cheese at the farmer's market. And later at the farmer's market, Frankie talks about potentially finding her soulmate in the cheese vendor. Babs spots Kai. Yes, Kai, one of my favorite boyfriends. At the very same market, now living in Burnside as a woodworker. I will say that at first I couldn't tell it was Kai. I was like, oh no, it's Ricky. It's Ricky from the best, but it's actually Kai. Babs and Kai have a friendly dinner to catch up, and Kai talks about his new job and continues to see whether Babs is single, as Babs confesses that she feels like her life isn't going anywhere. The next day at Burnside College, wow, she goes there still babs thinks back to her trip to asia and that she didn't keep up with her mma training and that kai looked really good no babs bad babs investigates a gym nearby and runs into oh may how whom babs also met while on her trip to asia remember that she owned a gym and trained babs for a short time it seems things didn't turn out well for may and her gym there was an accident but an american mma organization offered her something May offers to spar with Babs, and while unchanging, unchanging, and while taking off her clothing uh, in the locker room, of course, Babs notices how buff May is, but with an infected wound that May says is from a birth control implant in the arm, you know. And they actually do, because I've seen those commercials. They say that, you know, it's if you can't find, if you can't feel it, they may never be able to retrieve it again, which is a little scary because there's like some random thing in your arm you'll never get out. Anyways, May doesn't like Babs being nosy and pushes her into the lockers and then runs off. As Batgirl, Babs follows May to a rough part of town and finds evidence of performance-enhancing drugs and an illegal fighting ring, of course. Two Hulk-sized women are fighting when Batgirl drops into the ring. She tries to talk a crazed May down but ends up getting into a physical altercation with her and is knocked out, one-punch style. While unconscious, who else but Fruit Bat? Yes, another person from the Asia trip. Visits Batgirl and tells her that everything she has encountered thus far has not been real, but created by the ray gun, which Lou used. Batgirl is stuck in a mind loop and she's creating her own prison brick by brick. If she doesn't get out of it, she will die. To be continued. Okay. Let me start off with the positives and tell you my favorite panel. I will say I really liked the art. I thought that um, there were a couple panels that I it reminded me of something. Maybe it was Spider-Man Loves Mary Jane with, or, or Mariko Tamaka. I, I, I don't know. I couldn't put my foot on it, but I really liked the art. I think my favorite page may have been 20, where you have Batgirl sliding through the legs of May, and then, but then you see a slow motion of that punch coming in and uh, not connecting, but you can tell it connects in the next one. Uh, I just like that series of panels and just sort of slow motion and her, you know, her knocked out and then her eyes closing and things like that. So, uh, but overall, I, I, I really liked the art. I want to 
hopefully you'll understand where I'm coming from. I don't think that this is a bad story per se, but I just didn't like it. So, I, you know, I think the quality was there. I'm just sort of frustrated and annoyed with it. So, uh, you know, it'll impact my rating to a certain extent, but I, I want to say that um, hopefully you can tell when when I say it's a bad story because, like, mistakes are made or things like that. There's a reason, but, you know, uh, this isn't poorly written, but my problems are... I just feel like it's so repetitious, not only with the mind thing, because I feel like it's the third time that we've dealt with some sort of mental intrigue with Barbara Gordon. But now, you know, now she's she's hitting roadblocks again, apparently of her own creation, but feeling she's not living up to it. And so it's, again, this sort of, you know, I'm not good enough, I need to find myself situation, and I just don't understand why we keep coming back to this. I also don't understand and I don't like the fact that the Asia characters are coming back. May is probably, you know, she's fine and Fruit Pact is fine, but when I saw Kai, I was rolling my eyes so hard. And then when you had May after that, you're, I thought, oh my gosh, why? What well, must we go back to this first storyline? And then, of course, Fruit Bat. Once Fruit Bat appeared, I thought, there's really got to be what is going on right now. It's way too much of a coincidence. So while I, I did not like the Asia storyline, and I don't like that we're coming back to it, I'm glad that at least there was a reason that you know that Raygun had had some sort of cause for all of that because otherwise it would be way too much of a coincidence. It is fun to go back after you figure out what has happened to sort of get hints of what has gone on. I'd say one of the first hints is that police arrived and she didn't call them. I mean, I guess some neighbors could have yelled, but very odd that um, all of a sudden <laughs> the police arrived and she was there. Seeing three people, I think coincidentally, um, was a little crazy. Uh, May being hopped up on, clearly hopped up on steroids and, and Barbara not realizing what's going on i think also a little strange what else could be happening the ah, i don't know you know i just don't like the boyfriends that she's been put with in this series but to have kai come back was super annoying especially after the way things ended and you know not feeling like it wasn't really worth it and then all of a sudden you know thinking about him oh my goodness so uh like i said you know uh, it's not necessarily bad i just i just don't uh, i didn't really like it and i think you can excuse a lot of this because it is happening in her mind and it's not real uh, oddly, the Frankie stuff was written as if it were really Frankie, um, so I thought that was pretty interesting. But I do wonder about when Fruit Bat is saying that you're building your own prison brick by brick, I wonder, I'm just sort of thinking, and I'm trying to relate it to maybe television shows or something like that, where you know someone is maybe hypnotized or something has happened to them. Are they the ones that create it, or was it created by the technology? And so I guess I could potentially reason that this ray gun, whatever it did to her, caused something to happen. And maybe it's really delving into her subconscious and pulling out doubts that have always been there and now pulling them to the surface. But then is her prison the fact that she's not good enough? And so if she doesn't get out of it, uh, she's going to be stuck there or like she's going to be beat down and then like 
physically she'll take a toll and yeah i'm not sure so i need more explanation on that i like that fruit bat is there i wish you were more of a physical representation than a mental representation i'm wondering if we're going to get out of the asia arc and we're going to also start revisiting i mean is this going to be hope larson's greatest hits situation where we're going to start seeing ethan cobblepot and all sorts of other people i mean she did mention dick and i can't remember if she mentioned anybody else as if that were a major thing but you know it'll be interesting to see but you know it's just it's circular it's so circular donovan made a joke that you know hope larson found out how much i loved ring compositions and so she's doing it for me i don't know but yeah uh who knows donna also wonders if or he was telling me you know is she uh on her way out hope larson is she ending i haven't heard anything of course you know i've not really been looking on the the dc comics news but mm, this is, uh, I guess it would make sense to end with this, but it's, I can't tell. I can't tell. Because, you know, coming back to it, you're thinking, well, she's she's coming back, she's revisiting, but I feel like with this whole run, I've, I've seen the same thing a lot of, a lot of time over and over again. So I can't really tell. So uh, we'll see what happens. So I, I really can't judge this story yet until I think uh, I see the rest of it. But just like I said, I was annoyed that I had to revisit that particular story. So, you know, again, it may, it may not have been a bad story. I think it was fine. But uh, I just I didn't care for it. So I'm going to give it a 7 out of 10 bats. Well, hopefully now over to more positive reviews with Chris for his Batman Adventures. Ah, that's like having correctly predicted who is going to be wiped out in Avengers Affinity War, scoring some great books on Free Comic Book Day, and being all set for Deadpool 2. Thank you very much, Stella. Hello, Bat fans. Welcome once again to the Batman Adventures Review segment. Thank you very much for downloading, and as always, thank you for not fast-forwarding. My name is Chris, and I am very glad to be with you. Today I'm reviewing Batman Adventures number 5. Batman Adventures number 5 was cover dated February 1993 and had a cover price of $1.25. Our story is entitled Riot Act 2, and Martin Pascoe is credited with the plot, Kelly Puckett did the script, Brad Rader provided the pencils, Rich Perchette did the inks, and Rick Taylor was the colorist. This story has been reprinted in Batman The Collected Adventures Volume 1, which was released in 1993, and The Batman Adventures Volume 1, which was released in 2015. This is part two in the conclusion of the story with Scarecrow and the Illiteracy Plague. Right Act 2. Act 1. Johnny Can't Read. We open with Batman and Robin in a warehouse, taking out the street gang called the Snakes, who are employed by the Scarecrow. The warehouse contains television sets with devices that induce the illiteracy plague, and Robin takes apart one of the sets to find the gizmo that induces the virus. We next see the Scarecrow having a nightmare, complete with Cain and Abel from the House of Mystery and the House of Secrets, acting as Arkham counselors, and allowing Scarecrow to be in a work-release program to teach a subject of his choice at a college. He gleefully accepts, but then realizes, how can he teach if the students can't read? So then he's going to consider teaching them a lesson in fear. He's awoken by a henchman, and he starts to continue his plan. Act 2. Hi-Fi Hijinks Robin breaks into Mayor Hill's apartment just before Hill can turn on a TV set and be exposed to the plague. Robin breaks the set apart, and he removes the induction component, and he gives it to Commissioner Gordon. He tells the men that the Scarecrow is behind the plague. A member of the Scarecrow's gang finds paramedics at his elderly mother's apartment. Gravely ill, the paramedics are unable to assist as they can't read the labels on the medicine. 
Batman arrives and, being able to read, he administers the proper medication. Batman confronts the gang member, telling him he's responsible, and he demands Scarecrow's location. On a docked ship, we see the Scarecrow watching Mayor Hill's televised announcement about the cause of the illiteracy plague, a device in television sets, and that the Scarecrow is responsible. Scarecrow punches a fist through his set, and he tells his gang that they are about to have visitors. Act 3. Those Who Can't Do Batman and Robin arrive on the ship and promptly take down dozens of henchmen. Robin goes after the Scarecrow, but a stack of televisions topple over him. As the Scarecrow tries to flee, Robin tries to convince the Scarecrow that he has the power to help thousands. Scarecrow tosses him what I guess is a curing component, and then he runs right into Batman. Now behind bars, Scarecrow is called Crane by a guard, but Crane reminds him that his name is the Scarecrow. The end. Uh, I don't have much to say about this one. While the Scarecrow is a formidable villain, I'm not sure he warrants a two-part story in this title. As Crane, his hair is sandy-colored, and he seems to have a wide face, as opposed to the dark hair and slender face that the character initially had when he first appeared in World's Finest Number 3. His facial features are more animated when he has his mask on. Both depictions of the character do have long noses. We don't really get the fear motif associated with the character. It's different, and I will have to acknowledge that this is something new for the villain with a plot point. Again, the ransom figure for the illiteracy plague wasn't mentioned. The art was very good, nice city scenes, and the fighting sequences were especially well done. We had great panels where Batman leaps through some smoke during a fight scene, and the Scarecrow shedding a tear at what he's done. One quibble I had was that there didn't appear to be an apostrophe in the word can't in the Act 3 title. One nice touch was seeing the cameos of Cain and Abel, the caretakers of the House of Mystery and the House of Secrets, respectively. This certainly wasn't outstanding, but serviceable just the same. I can't quite bring myself to give this a 6 out of 10 bats, but I'll be generous and give it a 7 out of 10 bats. Now for my segment within a segment, Nightwatch, where I will take a quick peek at the Nightwing title. This time at issues numbers 42 and 43. In Nightwing number 42, Nightwing takes on the Crimson Kabuki, with no shipping present. And in Nightwing number 43, Nightwing teams up with Damien and Arsenal in an adventure that includes a plot versus Cheshire. Awkward! We have some bromance here to be sure, but I will say with the particular players and the size of the cast involved, there is no shipping. So, in conclusion, there is no shipping alert. Repeat, no shipping alert in Nightwing numbers 42 and 43. This concludes this segment of Nightwatch. I don't have anything by way of feedback or news this month. I do want to give a special shout-out to someone on Twitter, and that would be Jamie S. She reached out to me and sent me a link to a screenplay that she's written called Nightwing and Batgirl Year One. A lot of time, care, and crafting went into this. She has an obvious love of the characters. I thought it was great, and I had some scenes that I really, really liked. If you'd like to read it yourself, she has a link on her Twitter page, and you can find her on Twitter. She goes by Jamie S., and she is at JDIMaria124. Again, that's JDIMaria124. Take a look. Tell her what you think. Thank you very much for sending it my way. I enjoyed it. And thank you to Stella. She can be heard this month on Everyone Loves the Drake podcast as one of the voices in the audio drama. Gee, I wonder who. Shout out to Jerry Green, my partner on the Bat Books for Beginners podcast, where Jerry and I will review a trade paperback of Batman or related characters. 
as well as the Professor Frenzy Show, a new podcast where Jerry and I will look at indie comic titles and or things we think you should be reading. Please give those podcasts a try. Shout out to the Sutherlands, host of the podcast Willard Worlds, Trekker Talk, Xenozoic Xenophiles, Sensational Sleuths, and Convention Correspondents. And of course, shout out to the Batman Universe. Listeners, please consider supporting the Batman Universe via Patreon by following a link on the Batman Universe homepage or by making a one-time donation of any amount. Thank you for your support. Listeners, if you wish to leave any feedback for this segment or the podcast, you can comment directly on this episode by clicking on the link on the Batman Universe homepage. If you wish to contact me directly, you can by Twitter, where I am at BTO and Batbooks, again on Twitter at BTO and Batbooks. Or you can reach me by email, where my email address is bruce.wayne at gothamcity.us. Thank you for your support. Who is Bruce Wayne accused of murdering in the next issue? How can Bruce Wayne clear himself while he is behind bars? What peril will befall Dick Grayson, and can Batman possibly save him? Don't fail to listen to the next podcast where the answers to these acute, acoustic, accessible, academic, accostable, accidental accusations will be acquiesced and accounted for next time. Same Stella feed, same Stella sight. Thanks, Chris. Now we have my anime watch list. And I've gotten down to, I think what happens is I do like marathon anime watching. And then I seem to take a break and get into something else. So it's I, I might have to start watching again or also run out of things to recommend. I'm actually recommending three things this time. And they're all related. They're all related. And they're all related to Honeyworks, uh, which is a Japanese group. And their songs have been inspiration for um, the films and series that I'm about to feature here. And uh, they have music videos and things like that. And, uh, yeah. So, you know, almost their lyrics and their songs are the catalyst for these larger stories. So they take pieces of that and then they go. So it's very interesting. I, I recommend looking up. So I've got two movies and a TV show. And you could absolutely knock these movies out at the same time. Shipper Heavy, which is why I love them. First movie, 2016. Zuda Mai Haku Jiko Inikai. I've always liked you is what, is what it is in English. One hour, three minutes. Love is blooming at Sakura Goka High School. Natsuki Enomoto has finally mustered the courage to confess to her childhood friend, Yu Setoguchi. However, in the final moments of her confession, embarrassed Natsuki passes it off as practice confession. It was terrible. Oblivious to, as a practice confession, if you couldn't hear me, sorry. Oblivious to her true feelings and struggling with his own, Yu promises to support Natsuki in her quest for love. While Natsuki deals with her failed confession, fellow classmates Kuyuki Ayase struggles with her own feelings for Natsuki. Despite his timidness, he is determined to win over her heart. So this movie follows Natsuki as she dreams of one day ending her practices and genuinely confessing to you. Meanwhile, close friends also find themselves entangled in their own webs of unrequited love and unspoken affections. I think that this is new anime viewer approved. It's Japanese with English subtitles. It's shipper have it's it's romance school at its finest. Love it. And uh Natsuki, uh she's very cute. I love how she wears pants under her skirt. She's definitely p- probably a, a a girl after my own heart there. Um <laughs> being more sporty perhaps than than girly. Uh 
Next, Sukini Naro Sono Shunkai Wo, Kokuhaku Jiku Inikai. The moment you fall in love. This was also 2016. Again, one hour and three minutes. Not come out at the same time. Following Natsuki Enomoto's confession rehearsals with you, Saroguchi, their younger siblings, oh, sorry, with you, Saroguchi, their younger siblings, Kotaru and Hina, struggle to confess their own love. Despite a disastrous first meeting in middle school with her upperclassman, Koyuki Ayase, Hina's heart is captured by his warm smile. Initially confused by these newfound feelings, Hina soon realizes that she has fallen in love for the very first time. Chasing after her brother Yu and her crush Koyuki, Hina also enrolls in Sakura Goka High School. But the threads of love are far-reaching, and they entangle Hina and her friends. Boisterous but sensitive, Hina hopes to confess her feelings to the tender-hearted Koyuki. Meanwhile, Kotaru, oblivious to his own feelings for her, is determined to always keep Hina smiling. This follows Hina, Kotaru, and Kuyuku in high school. Their youthful love forges new relationships, but also threatens to break others. You can watch this on its own, but it is very much, uh, it, it, I shouldn't say very much, it, very, uh, it serves somewhat as a sequel to the other one. And then, oh, new anime viewer approved, absolutely, Japanese with English subtitles. And then finally, it's Sudate Bokura no Koi wa 10 centimeter data. Our love has always been 10 centimeters apart. Six episodes, just very recent, 2017, Japanese with English subtitles. Miyu Aida and Haruki Sirizawa might seem like polar opposites to those around them, but as the two third years prepare to end their high school experience, they couldn't have been closer. While Miu is a shy and reserved member of the school art club that prefers to stay out of the limelight, Haruki is a boisterous and confident ace of the movie club, already winning awards for his directing prowess. However, after a previous chance encounter during their school entrance ceremony, they quickly become friends despite their stark differences in personality. But although their closeness might be growing, they've never become anything more than just that, much to the bewilderment of their friends. As their time in high school draws to a close, Miu and Haruki along with their friends in the art and movie clubs, have just one year left to face their hidden feelings and the daunting task of deciding their future careers. The two might always be only an arm's reach away, 10 centimeters, but as Haruki chases his dream of becoming a professional movie director and Miyu struggles with choosing a path for herself, they'll learn just how hard it is to get past those 10 centimeters. What I love about this whole series is that you get repeat characters. We focus on different ones and different forms, so the different movies and then this tv series but uh you see them so you get comfortable with them and you're like oh yeah there they are again so if you have a favorite most likely they'll pop up again so i recommend all of those super fun knock those movies out in one sitting absolutely and uh the i think i actually watched all six uh i don't know it's pretty cool i may have watched all six episodes in one city but they're only you know 20 22 minutes so there you go Okay, now finally, my literature recommendations. First up, Batman, No Man's Land by Greg Rucka. Gotham City, a dark, twisted reflection of urban America. Overcrowded, overbuilt, and overshadowed by a continuous air of menace, this gothic nightmare is a breeding ground for the depraved, the indifferent, and the criminally insane. It's also the object of one man's obsession. Witness to the brutal murder of his parents, Bruce Wayne has dedicated his life to protecting the city, taking a form to inspire hope in the innocent and fear in the guilty. He is now the masked vigilante, known as Batman. Now the battlefield has changed. Leveled by a massive earthquake that left thousands of dead and millions more wounded, Gotham City has been transformed into a lawless wilderness, a no-man's land, where the survivors are turning against one another and where the city's protectors are torn by a crisis that may consume them all. I finally read this. People have been recommending this for years. I think mostly 
Michael Bailey. And uh, Oracle, she has several chapters to herself because she has little data entries and things like that. Sort of journals. They are journals that she's writing to her dad. She plays a key role, just like she does in the comic series. I learned a couple different things. One of them being she named Cassandra Kane because Cassandra didn't have a name. Or Cassandra did have a name but was unable to relay it to Oracle. So if you ever wondered how she got her name, Cassandra Kane, that's how she got it, according to Greg Rucka. I also was biding my time for Sarah Essen to die, which was uh, still pretty, uh, whew, reading it in prose form as I was getting closer to the end. I thought, no, no, oh no, it's still hard. Also, Batman and Huntress, tension there. Huntress and Oracle, tension there in, in a different form. So I'm sort of getting different glimpses, different perspectives of this. And Nightwing and Huntress, weird tension there. Uh, I don't know if I could say romantic, but I know that there's sort of a continuity weirdness going on in the comics, but it kind of seems like he very much cares for her, even though I'm confused because remember in that Nightwing issue I read where they're in the car together and he's like, that was a mistake that we slept together. If I knew then what I knew now. So I'm not really sure about that i guess we'll see once i do no man's land and cover where he kisses babs but sleeps with nitrous so what (laughs) kisses babs but sleeps with huntress i had a weird little shipper name there but really well done I feel like it really captured everything and um, got me prepared got me prepared for it it was good i read it after i just finished it so i read it after after shocking Road to No Man's Land. So I'm all set to cover the comics. Next, Darth Plagueis by James Lucerno. Darth Plagueis, like all Sith Lords before him, craves absolute power. But like no Sith Lord ever, he possesses the ultimate power over life and death. Darth Sidious, in secret, he masters the power of the dark side while publicly climbing to the highest government office. One desires to rule supreme, the other dreams of living forever. Together they will destroy the Jedi and rule the galaxy, unless merciless Sith tradition becomes their undoing. This was one of the ones that, uh, when you go on sort of what novels to read, this always pops up. And so uh, you certainly get the Darth Plagueis, obviously, which you learn about in Revenge of the Sith. And then you... Uh, also get a sense of the relationship between Sidious and Plagueis. And you get some training little things. Who'd have thunk, you know, that Sidious went through some rough training as a young man. Also in the Star Wars universe, Dr. Aphra wanted to take a chance on this because I had read her in the Darth Vader series and thought, well, yeah, she's an interesting character. Let me give this a shot. So uh, I read Volume 1 and then Volume 2, which is the Screaming Citadel. It's a crossover with the Star Wars. And then The Enormous Prophet, uh, written by Kieran Gillen and mostly art by Kev Walker. Following her time in the clutches of Darth Vader, Dr. Aphra has barely escaped with her life. If he ever learns of her survival, he'll hurt her to the ends of the galaxy. Sorry, he'll hunt her, but he'll probably hurt her too. But for now, it's time for a return to what she does best. With the droid 000 and BT-1 in tow, she's off to search in search of rare artifacts from the galactic center to the outer rim and everywhere in between. Aphra's got debts to pay after all. Just as long as she can stay one step ahead of the Empire, some bounty hunters, and just about everyone else in the galaxy. 
I like it because while some dark things do in fact happen, there's absolutely some humor. I like her personality and it's really weird when, uh, I guess it's black humor because the droids are saying really terrible things, uh, especially Zero, but the way they say it is, is, is humorous. And finally, something I borrowed from Tom, or he lent me, because he does that, he puts things on my reading list, Chase by Dan Curtis Johnson and Art by, uh, well, I guess both really, but Art also by J.H. Williams III. And the reason he lent this to me was because of the talk of Chase in DC One Million, and I said, I don't know what that is, and, uh, well, here we go. Collecting a cult favorite series from the late 90s, spotlighting the amazing artwork of J.H. Williams III, Chase stars Agent Cameron Chase. On field assignment for the Department of Extra Normal Operations, the DEO, a government agency with jurisdiction over superhuman activity, she's looking for a missing boy whose pyrokinetic powers went wild in an Ohio school. But she's about to encounter some unexpected surprises as her own mysterious powers come into play, powers she doesn't fully understand. I'm sorry it ended because those that, that storyline's not really fleshed out about the powers and things like that. And now I've got a better grasp of her in Batwoman and the DEO in Batwoman and Mr. Bones in Batwoman. And I need to go back and probably read Batwoman again to put into perspective. But really good, fun, entertaining, and some weird one million. But it wasn't the worst one million. I thought it was pretty good. It was pretty good. The worst one was still Asriel. Still Asriel. Well, that is it for this episode. I don't have any thought-provoking questions to ask you, I think. Nope. No thought-provoking questions. I hope you enjoyed the Two Zias Radio Hour, as well as JL May 2018 coverage on Backroll Oracle. Remember, you can send any questions or comments at backroadoracle at gmail.com. You can also find the show on Google Play and Stitcher. Like the show on Facebook or follow it on Twitter at Backroll Oracle. And follow the Batman Universe on Facebook and Twitter as well. Support the Batman Universe by subscribing to Patreon. Once again, thanks to Mile High Comics for subs- ooh, for sponsoring Backroll the Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. And until next time, fly on, Babs lovers. Just plain Barbara Gordon, masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. Ah, I love a happy ending, don't you? <laughs>